Keep Your Cool is a podcast about Star Wars RPGs. Cover art for the show provided by Silas Bazaar. All music for the show provided by Louise Humanoid. Links for both of them are in the description of the show. Thank you for listening. Hello there. Welcome to episode two of the Keep Your Cool podcast. I'm your host, Davis Ballou. Episode 2! Two weeks later. Two weeks in a day, really. It may be every other week for a little while until I can figure out a better writing and recording schedule. But, here we are now. Some updates since the last episode. Yes, some, some news, I guess. Nothing incredibly newsworthy. First of all, I myself have picked up some new Star Wars source books to give me a better knowledge bank to pull from. And I really, really dug into those for today's episode, so I think there's going to be a little bit more detail in the Planetary Spotlight, which is exciting. So hopefully that goes over well. Second thing is a little embarrassing. I mentioned last time I was on here a couple weeks ago that there was about to be a big Fantasy Flight live stream where they were going to discuss the RPGs in the future. And it turns out the graphic I saw was from last year. And the big reveals have been out for a little while now. They did run a specific campaign book during that live stream that is actually really relevant to today's episode, so I guess I can say I was truly prophetic uh, with me saying that, but that would be ridiculous, and it makes no sense, and really I just look foolish because I didn't look at the date on the picture. Uh, Anyway, I'll talk about that campaign book I mentioned earlier when we get to the Planetary Spotlight, but I have a quick little detour I want to go on before we get there. I think there's some interesting introduction to be made in regard to the state of the Star Wars Extended Universe. Now, if you don't know, the Extended Universe, or EU, loosely put, is the collection of Star Wars canon media that is not on screen. So pretty much comics, books, audio dramas, video games, etc. They're all, you know, considered a part of the Star Wars universe, but they're not one of the main part of the main movies they're going to show on screen or even the TV shows they're, they're on Disney Plus right now. The EU got a reset around 2012 when Disney took over, thus splitting it into a canon EU and a Legends EU, as they call it. The Legends material is pretty much anything that is not a Clone Wars episode or a movie that was made before the acquisition. And one of the reasons people got upset over the buy was that all those books, all those books that are now considered Legends that they had been reading, were pretty much being thrown out of the canon window by Disney so that they could have space to tell their own stories. And they saw it. The fans saw it as Disney saying, no, that's not how it happened, just sort of in, in an offhanded way. And obviously Disney did tell their own stories, the sequel trilogy, Rogue One, Solo movies. They used the space that they had cleared out from those books and the time in between the original trilogy and the sequels, even though, you know, obviously there weren't sequels to fill in gap, the gaps to back then. It was just kind of the, a wild frontier of, of space to just write books into the future. Um, but what they hadn't touched upon in all their clearing out and, and new movies and even the new TV shows, the era they hadn't touched upon is the time before the prequels, that Old Republic era, as it's called. And what's interesting about this era is that they're bringing back a lot of the legends' ideas as they rewrite and tell about this time in the galaxy. And 
This theme can really be seen in today's system of focus, which is the system of Yavin. Much like Tatooine, if you've seen episode 4, you've seen the moon Yavin 4. The central planet of the Yavin system, however, is actually Yavin Prime. It's the big orange gas giant that you see the Death Star orbiting around. And it actually has 26 moons, all of them named in the same way as Yavin 4, Yavin 1, Yavin 2, etc. The Yavin system itself is in the outer rim, most easily accessible by exiting the Hydean Way hyperlane, which is essentially just a space highway. The planet Yavin Prime is a gas giant, as I mentioned, thus making it incapable of hosting human life. In fact, only three of the moons, Yavin 4 being one of them, can actually sustain human life. As for the other 23 moons, I, I guess they just contribute to the extreme gravitational fluxion when flying throughout the system. Any player flying throughout the system will have to keep the, these pools in mind, as they can really cause problems for your inner system jumps. In episode 4, we see Han Solo on his way to the fourth moon, actually using the gravitational pull of Yavin Prime to his advantage by orbiting it until he could see his destination and fly towards it, rather than fly all the way around the planet, presumably to avoid those fluctuations I was mentioning from all the different moons kind of pulling him in different directions. The history of this system is rich yet mysterious. Remember what I talked about earlier? The Legends material written about this now is considered obsolete, but you can see bits and pieces of it kind of trickle back into the canon because Star Wars fans who were reading those books back then and gathering that information are now the ones writing the new Star Wars books. So GMs who kind of know about that Legends material from Yavin 4 or any other planet can use that to really fill in a lot of the historical blanks in a really cool way. If there's a gap that you see and you know it's been filled in before, but it just hasn't been filled in yet, that's a great place to kind of take that old knowledge and put it to use again. So think of the moon as we see it in episode 4, or Rogue One, or Rebels, or wherever you've seen it. The rebel base is located in a big temple. In fact, there are quite a few temples laying around whose bricks are littered with cracks and covered with moss. Now, the Rebellion is hardly old enough for their bases to already be accumulating such wear and tear. And come to think of it, even amongst the vast possibilities of space, it's hard to believe rebel engineers would build their military structures to resemble temples. So now the question is raised. Who built all those temples? Well, Canon has confirmed what legends once had stated. The temples were built by an ancient species known as the Masasi. What has not been confirmed is why exactly they built them. Scholars have suggested they were under the control of the Sith many millennia ago, and they built temples to honor the powerful Sith lords that ruled over them, filling the insides of these temples with treasure. The treasure is thought to be long gone, but surely not all of the temples are being used by the rebels, right? Maybe one is overlooked, tucked away in the moon's jungle, waiting on a group of players to get through the traps and grab the riches. But while we're on the subject of valuable items, let's pan over to Yavin Prime. If you play Edge of the Empire like I typically do, you've likely seen the Jewel of Yavin adventure book. Now, ironically, this adventure takes place on Bespin, but the gem itself was originally discovered in the atmosphere of the gas giant, where it was then taken, presumably by the Masasi, to one of the moon's temples, as I mentioned earlier, filling those temples with valuables. The gem is incredibly valuable, with the ability to net a party up to 250,000 credits if they find the right buyer, 
And who's to say that the one on Bespin is the only one floating around in there? Perhaps some eccentric collector wants the players to find him another one, offering up plenty of credits and compensation. Players would need to prepare their ship to undergo some severe pressure as they search the thick atmosphere of the gas giant for these Karuska gems, as they're called, that glint and glow almost any color the GM can think of, whatever their favorite is that day. The, un- the uniqueness of these gems to the system combined with the danger of finding one could even help the players negotiate a higher price or perhaps even have their benefactor pay for their ship upgrades. Shifting back to the moon, let me better describe the landscape before we go any further. The surface is covered in jungles with large oceans separating the continents and vast lakes dotting these land masses. Every part of this moon's ecosystem is unique. The jungle is filled with purple-barked masasi trees, there's something called a grenade fungi, and orchids that are described as being bioluminescent, which, after I looked it up, it's a real word by the way, not just made-up space stuff, is described as the production of light by living organisms. So think of the lanternfish from Finding Nemo. And the creatures that live on this moon are no less strange. First and foremost is the woolamander. The best way I can describe the appearance of a woolamander is to have you imagine a monkey and mix it with a macaw and maybe take away the wings. They are incredibly rare. They can only be found on Yavin 4. They are a great prize for an avid hunter, especially with their colorful fur. In fact, any hunter worth their blaster will want to travel here as the challenging hunts only increase from here. The carnivorous armored eel is found feasting on lizard crabs around the swamps. Massive runyips, which are pretty much a herd animal whose leather was used to make Poe Dameron's jacket that we see in the sequel trilogy, they roam around occasionally being attacked by piranha beetles. And for our final, um, for our purposes, that is the final animal that we are far done from the list of creatures native to the moon, is the true challenge for the hunter, the tiny leviathan grub. Tiny, that is, until around its 300th birthday, when it emerges from below the ground where it had previously fed, and it emerges as one of the largest carnivores in the forest. The Ultimate Encyclopedia describes Yavin 4 as having one of the most diverse ecosystems in all the galaxy, and what I have told you is just the highlights. As I said, there are incredible opportunities for explorers, especially big game hunters, to find and collect all sorts of oddities that cannot be seen naturally anywhere else in the galaxy. Now, let's shift focus back to when we first see Yavin 4. In A New Hope, a massive rebel base is discovered by the Empire. The Death Star enters orbit when, just before it can fire on the moon, a squad of rebellion starfighters manages to destroy the battle station and save the base. So, why does the next movie start with the rebels on Hoth? Well, not long after the end credits roll, the Rebellion leaders begin mobilizing forces to find a new planet to host their secret base, as this one is not so secret anymore. Once a replacement is found, they evacuate as quickly as possible and uh, you know, evade a possible Imperial counterattack. And in fact, we know that Hoth is not the only base that they find. There are other planets that they decide to set up smaller outposts on. But because of the hasty exit, the Rebels leave behind some loose ends dangling on the planet, specifically their data centers, mainly their communications about where they're going to move their next bases. After they had already moved off to the moon, rebel task forces were sent back to the moon to destroy these centers so as not to let them fall into imperial hands. In fact, 
Many skirmishes apparently took place on Yavin 4 before Episode 5 even begins, presumably for the purpose of controlling these data centers. Depending on when your campaign takes place, GMs, your players might be rebel cartographers, tasked with discovering and mapping unknown worlds to serve as smaller bases for the rebellion, or perhaps it's a few months in the future, and the party happens to be a, be a team of spec ops soldiers whose mission it is to fight off Imperial troops while destroying one of the data centers. Other teams are sent to the centers as well. But something's gone wrong. Team 2 isn't responding. The party's team is finished with theirs, but the mission is not confirmed to be over. There's been no communication with the other data center. What does the team do? Or maybe your game is a little bit unique. I've been seeing on Reddit that the popularity of Imperial games, you know, playing as an Imperial soldier or an Imperial operative, is really high right now. The popularity of that is, is pretty high. So let's say your party is Imperial operatives, tasked with stopping the Rebel Strike Forces from destroying the data centers, recover the data at all costs. Regardless of what path you take there, whether it's for war or for sport, there are no shortages of reasons to use a weapon on Yavin 4. All the hunts that can take place, all the battles that can take place, even all the exploration, who knows what sort of traps the Masasi laid in those temples to protect the treasure. Lots of excitement can happen on this, on this moon, and there's so much hidden below the jungle canopy that just cannot have been discovered yet. Your players could come across some unique things that have not been found in the galaxy before. A unique animal, um, you know, some other ruins besides just the temples, uh, some mysterious ecosystem. And speaking of mysterious ecosystems, let's fast forward a few months to after episode six. A man named Kess Dameron and his wife Shara Bay join the new rush of settlers on their way to colonize the moon after an advertisement is written about the ruins by a special galaxy reporter. With them, they bring the twig of a very special Force-sensitive tree. They were gifted this special twig by Luke Skywalker after helping him rescue it from an Imperial base. What tree could be so significant as to have its twigs be under such maximum security? Why, the tree from the courtyard of the Jedi Temple, as a matter of fact. This twig does, in fact, grow into its own tree, adding even more to the uniqueness of this ecosystem. Many years after the Empire's defeat, a Force-sensitive player could receive a quest, or perhaps just some pool or calling for a journey to see this tree. Now, the tree itself does not necessarily contain great knowledge or power, but its significance for a Force user would be enough to warrant the use of, perhaps, obligation by the GM, or have the dangling benefit of increasing the player's force ability once they find it and uh, perhaps meditate. There's so much to see on Yavin 4. In fact, I pretty much feel like I just gave you the vacation advertisement for the moon whenever I described all the uh, ecosystems and all of the creatures and all of the fortunes to be beholden. But truth be told, GMs, you have no shortage of creatures to throw at your hunters, no shortage of explorations to be undertaken with artifacts to be found, and no shortage of battles for your military campaigns on this jungle moon. And I really want to stress the use of explorers here. As I said, whether or not you're actually exploring the planet itself or you're beginning as a rebel operative on there, a rebel cartographer going out to explore other planets being sent from Yavin 4, I think the role of the explorer is one that is not really used often enough. In fact, I've had a, an urge to, uh, to make one myself recently. 
I think that their abilities are are really underappreciated and could you know have could really be explored in maybe a a non competitive or maybe a a campaign that is less focused on the combat aspects of of the game and could you know Yavin 4 would be a fantastic place to really build into those uh like temple runner type um type of exploration campaigns uh or tomb raider i guess is is really the the thing i'm thinking about indiana jones stuff like that could really be explored in breaking into those temples or charting out the unknown lands so i'll end today off with yet another story and this is a pretty long one there they are the bright orange streets of nar shaddaa the players are Kobe one different than Kobe, who I spoke about a couple weeks ago, and one spelled like the number Kobe one, the droid KRT, and the cybernetic fanatic Bodhi. The three of them are picking up some weapons from a hut's major domo and taking a quick detour into the city with the intent of adding some new crew members to their growing cast of NPC players. Much to my dismay, Bodhi makes a spectacle of himself by freaking out a man on the street who is. Not right in his mind, to say the least, but neither is Bodhi, as you will see. As the crowd begins to freak out as Bodhi begins making this spectacle, KRT decides to defuse the situation by grabbing the man in question from behind and essentially putting him in a headlock. Surprisingly, this does not actually defuse the situation. However, in an uncharacteristic show of poise, Kobe One reacts well to the situation casually strolling into a nearby cantina and chatting up some fellow patrons who he eventually hires very peacefully. As he strolls back to his ship, new crewmates in tow, the situation on the street remains chaotic, to say the least. Bodhi and KRT, recognizing they need to make a break for it, also begin running for the ship. The only thing is, KRT is still holding on to the man that they freaked out in the street, who is now screaming for his life. They continue running along the street until they are approached by two police droids who demand to know what they are doing. Well, Bodhi and KRT explain, this man needs rehabilitation. Clearly he is out of his mind, and they are taking him to his clinic, to their clinic at the edge of the city. The droids are put somewhat at ease by this explanation, but they demand Bodhi and KRT allow them to escort the players to their non-existent clinic. Naturally, they agree. As the group gets closer to the edge of the city, they realize... They need a distraction to get the police droids off of them. So Bodhi makes a call to Kobe One, who has just shown the new crewmates to their ship. Now, Kobe One had, earlier in the session, created a bomb. Yes, a bomb, for actually no reason whatsoever other than he simply wanted to. And now he has a reason to use it. This is a theme, by the way, with Kobe. Strange inventions are made at the beginning of a campaign, and... Um, at some point during the session, it's just, it's needed for some reason or another. He rushes from the ship into the city, finds an empty part of town, then runs back to the ship as quickly as possible. On his way back, he detonates the bomb, sending the local police force into a whirl. Boldy and KRT's police droid escort states they will be by to check, by, check their rehab license the next day, but they must go sprint off to control the situation. The players make it away with their three new crewmates, one of them not so willingly, but the ramifications of their actions are due to come. I know you guys are listening, so beware. And uh, as a note, the player in charge of Kobe One, Ethan Keller, 
has uh, asked that I say he did not actually want to uh, detonate the bomb. He just had to do it. It was what he had to do. Um, I don't know if you if you know Ethan, if, if you guys actually believe that, but he he asked that it be said as sort of a uh, disclaimer at the end there. Anyway, that's all I really have for this week. I'm really starting to toy with the idea of adding some more music uh, into the show, some sort of cut-ins and cut-outs. Um, let, me, let me know what you guys think of the format right now and what you would think of having more music and stuff like that. As I mentioned earlier, I'm at reddit at r slash kycpodcast and Instagram at kycpod. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Sorry it's been a little while since the last episode. I'll try to make this a little bit more consistent. But until the next time I see you, may the Force be with you always. Always.